Welcome, everybody, to the 13th edition of the South Dakota Podcast and Blast. I am Chris Hull, sitting in Studio A, which is actually just my living room. Uh, dogs are not barking for once, but they do bark in one of these uh, one of these interviews. Got some cool stuff ahead of you today. Had uh, one of my friends and co-workers, Jody Motes, who works down at the Adams Museum, take a picture that went completely bananas on social media, so we're going to talk to Jody about that. And then after that, I've got uh, connected with my friend Buddy Siner of Pier and FishStories.org to talk a little bit about uh, keeping the traditions of telling fish stories alive, talk a little bit about fly fishing and a little bit about life. And I uh, hope you're all well and practicing your social distancing, but you're doing it locally on your favorite fishing hole or in your favorite turkey blind. So uh, listen up, because i got a good one for you. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another Strange Days Indeed episode of the South Dakota Game Fishing Parks Podcast and Blast. I am your host, your guide, your Sherpa, Chris Hull, communications guy with Game Fishing Parks. And today I have a coworker and friend of mine that if you've ever been to the South Dakota State Fair and you are lucky enough to catch the lady with all the cool snakes... You will know who I'm talking about. Uh, she is Jody Motes, and she's from the Adams Homestead. Jody, thanks for joining us today. Hey, hey, thank you for having me. Thank you. And one of the reasons uh, we we put out the last podcast, and I threw it out to all our staff. Uh, you know, hey, if anybody's got any great stories, great talking points, great things that you're doing, or you have done, or you're going to do again, um, you know, hit me up. And uh, Jody, I think this is like the third time you said, hey, I want to be on and let's talk about snakes. And I'm like, yeah, okay, right, and today, right. was, you know, today was a perfect, <laughs> perfect uh, opportunity for that because um, Jody got the opportunity to take this amazing picture of, I, is, a, is a group of snakes called a bunch? Is there like a, is it like a murder of crows? Is there a word for a group of snakes? I, I think there is a technical term, and that is the one thing I thought, oh, I'm thinking of what questions is Chris going to ask me? <laughs> and that was the one I was like, I should have remembered that one. I know there's probably some technical term of a group of snakes we'll, we'll call out there them somewhere. A spaghetti bowl of snakes. But the Jody took yes, this amazing like picture. Of like seven snakes peeking up out of a hole, and they're all kind of looking intently, and and she tied it to social distancing, and and it was quite brilliant. So, um, how yeah, many views of that? I would, I, Go ahead. Sorry, I'm sorry. I was saying I was a it's a very lucky find, and I I should give credit to um, the kids that visit the park. Um, you know, when I'm, when I'm working at the park or, you know, nowadays we were able to kind of come back and do some stuff outside. I tend to watch the park visitors and see sure. what they like to do and what they like to enjoy at the park. And whenever you see kids gathered around an area, like a couple of kids, two or right. three, 
and they're looking at something. You either know it's something really cool or something really gross. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> I watched them for a little bit, and then I realized they jumped back, and I thought, I bet they see a, they've seen a snake. And so uh, if I see them go back, I kind of ask them, what are you guys looking at? And they all these, all these snakes. And this location has kind of been a popular spot where people are stopping and looking. And the other day, before I recorded this, um, someone rode by on their bicycles and said, hey, there's a big ball of snakes in this location. Well, springtime, the mating ball. So right. I just I kind of try to teach them about that. And toward the end of the day, I thought, well, I'm just going to go over and take a look at myself. Nobody was around, so I was doing my best at social distancing, too. Right. And it was right at the right time, about probably 14 of those little guys, um, little garter snakes, right. were just kind of peeking their heads out of the hole, as calm as they could be, you know, just kind of hanging out, um, looking around. And I thought, well, I'm just going to try to get a good picture of this, because this is pretty cool. Yeah. And as a naturalist by trade, um, I'm kind of a nature nut and those kind of things are my, I love finding that stuff. So I decided, well, I'll take a picture, and then I'll just take a little video and do my own right. little commentary because we've all been talking about social distancing and being no more in a group of 10 at a time, and obviously these guys are not doing <laughs> right. their best at it. They might have been staying at home like <laughs> we're right. supposed to do too. Right. But um, So I just did that comment, and I shared it on my own personal Facebook page just to my friends. And then I had one naturalist friend out in um, Pennsylvania that said, hey, would you mind um, that I share it? And I said, well, you know, not being the techno savage per savage or savvy person, I guess I should say, I'll say, well, I'll try to make it public. So I did, and it just exploded. And I was just amazed how many right. people responded. I think now I have over 16 million views wow. of this <laughs> of this video. Um and it's 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 crazy crazy, and I've all I I actually kind of went back to my friend private because I just had to have my my phone slow down a little bit with everything. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's been shared all over the world, all over the world. I've been contacted by people in Ireland, England, Australia, wow. um, just questions, and it's I am just amazed by it. But you know, I am happy that I could put a smile on people's faces. Right during um, this time, this tough times, and maybe they learn a little bit about snakes, maybe they, I put the fear more in people about snakes, you know, it's a spectrum of people's attitudes when it comes to snakes, either they really like them, and then you got the in-betweeners that are, eh, they're right. all right, but I don't want to be around them, and then you got the, I am scared to death of these things, <laughs> and I don't ever want to even see a picture right. of them, right. so, you know, our jobs as outdoor people you know, we want to educate people about the outdoors. People make them understand it so they feel more comfortable with it. So maybe this video kind of get, puts a cute side, if you want to say that, on uh, garter snakes. And then it starts a conversation. So right. I'm just amazed. So we'll see how far it goes. And um, I hope people that have seen it enjoyed it. I think it's on a lot of different places right now. Um, but I do have it licensed now. So um, you know, people that want to use it can go through a different system. So cool. it's been great. Yeah, it's been great. That's really cool. Talk about catching lightning in a bottle. That's 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 uh, I know that's awesome. <laughs> it, it and this is I'm actually kind of I, I wrote down. I actually kind of actually prepared for you today, Jody, and I have a bunch of questions. But well, I'm gonna thank go. You. I'm gonna go a little bit off track here because I know 
you personally, and I've seen you interact at, at the fair and at other gatherings and how engaged you are and how much work you put into some of your programming and stuff or all of your programming. So it's got to be a little bit weird to go, okay, you know, we have these strange times anyway, but then you just do this one-off thing where you're like, you catch lightning in a bottle, and you, you know, it's 14 snakes and they're all peeking up like looking and it reaches 16 million people, but then you spend hours on programming. And yeah, it's it's awesome, it's hands-on, and you've got kids and families coming through and you reach 50 people in a day. And then, I mean, now you gotta be thinking, God, you know, I, I did 16 million people with, with one video and, and some photos. And man, it, it, it just kind of changes the way, and obviously social media comes into play with that, but it changes kind of the way I even think about it because I, I I don't like doing these podcasts over the phone. I want to be in front of somebody so we can engage and I can read their body language and kind of play off stuff. But it really does kind of change, you know, maybe we can do some stuff, especially during these times that's that's effective and we can we can use different mediums. And, and, and like you said, it, if nothing else, even if it's just starting a conversation and they learn something and they, they smile and they're thinking about it, well, that's that's certainly a win, and 16 million views is is a giant win. So, right, right, and it is it it amazed me too. I was I'm just, was just flabbergasted by it. And you know, as a programmer, as an outdoor person, as someone that likes to talk and relate with people, you do start missing that right. um, actual sh- social contact right. with people. Um, but even being able now to work outside. Right. And still keeping our distance, we can still have conversations with people. So it's um, yeah, learning to educate in a different way, and you know, be brought up into this you know, techno you know, technological world anymore. Right. I'm kind of one of those old school people. Yep. You know, I've been starting to do programming. You know, just on our Adams Homestead and Nature Preserve Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing a couple programs, just short programs for. Um, teachers and um, just the general public, you know, preschool kids that I would normally see at this time going into their schools or them coming out to me on field trips. So taking different topics that they would probably be teaching right now in the school system. Um, yeah, it's been fun. It's been interesting. And um, it's been one of those that you, you know, you never know really the sound of your voice until you hear it <laughs> over and over again on recording. Yep. And I'm like, oh boy, this is what I sound like to people. So um, everybody feels that way, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. it's been fun and interesting, and it has changed, you know, my attitude toward a lot of things. And so, and this, you know, the world has changed. And um, but I am glad that people are still able to still come out to the outdoors and enjoy it and see those things and get to experience nature and you know, keeping their distance from other people and practicing those, um, like we said, to take care, be well, and be safe. And um, I think it's a lifeline for people to come and be outside for a little bit. Everybody needs a little bit of green exercise. Yep, and in probably more and, than we're uh, even getting now. Right, right, <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So, so let's, get back, great. let's get back to this picture. So you said those were garter snakes. Okay. Um, yes, they what, are. What were they doing this time of year? Are they just getting? Are they just coming out of their dens, going, "Man, that was a long winter"? Or what? What were they doing? <laughs> More than likely, yes. And right. and I never knew about this den site. Um, yeah, they're just active. You know, the last couple of days we had down here in North Sioux City have been beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, fifty, sixty degree. We had an eighty degree day. 
Um, so yeah, they're coming out and they're, um, it's spring, you know, finding that that mate sure. and, um, you know, looking for food and everything else. And they, this area where we found them was kind of near, um, kind of near our entrance. And it's a place where a tree was. And I forgot all about this tree that fell down a long time ago. Well, it's a den site, you know, with an old root system sure. is what it is. And I never noticed that hole before. But, you know, the ground shifts and stuff like that happens. And it could have been a hibernaculum for a few years and me not knowing it. Nobody else noticed it. But um, it's it was just a cool sign. And like I said, I can't take all the credit because it's those kiddos that I've always told, right. use your observation eyes. Right, right. Use those observation eyes. <laughs> and they're the ones that spotted it. And more than likely, you know, as a person that's in nature and outdoors all the time, sometimes we take advantage of those sites because we see them all the time. Right. And we're like, oh, it's just a garter snake. But to someone new that's never seen anything like that, that's just an amazing experience. So if I can spark the interest of people to um, to maybe just take a different kind of attitude around snakes right. um, or just spark an interest to learn a little bit more, I mean, these are the critters that I would call the unhuggables because they're kind of the ones that they've had. Well, if you think about it, snakes have had a bad rap since the beginning of time, pretty much. Um, you never see a cartoon or a movie that has, you know, the snake as the good superhero. Guy. You know, they're usually the sidekick yeah, right. or the, the mean thing. Right. Um, you know, but they're not like the ones that you just pick up and squeeze and hug and furry. So they're... Um, they're kind of like the, hunt, the unhuggables. I call them with the, like the bats, the spiders, you know, all right. those things. Very misunderstood, but so beneficial to the outdoors. And if we just take the time to learn about them and realize why they do the behavior that they do, they're not so bad. Right. They're not so bad. And I think they just have that, you know, and they're an amazing animal to have something survive with no legs, no arms. And can still eat food, find food, escape from predators, move. Right. That's to me. That that's where I get my interest in yeah. it. I always kind of go for the underdog. And I'm like, why do they do what they do? And I've always been that way as a kid. And sure. that's why I'm in the field that I am. I like to know what nature's doing. And now I'm kind of a teacher, but I always will be a student because there's always going to be something you're going to learn about the outdoors. Yeah. No matter what. So. Cool. So now. So hopefully with this. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, nope, go ahead. Well, hopefully with this, you know, we've kind of just, like I said, sparked some interest and, you know, more people will, you know, take, you know, if they see a snake, more like say, okay, and then walk away instead of, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go get the lawnmower or, <laughs> you know, those kind of things. The I'm going to go thrower. get the rake. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, flamethrower. I've seen a lot of that as response to my yes. uh, video, too. Yep. But it's. You know, it's just the understanding of everything. And that's our fear comes from misunderstanding is not no, the unknown. Right. I mean, obviously, during this time right now, there's a lot of unknown. So I can understand fear and things like that. Um, but if we get to know a little bit about the outdoors, nature, why it works the way it does, um, I think people start feeling a little bit more comfortable. So. Right. So now I, I've got like. 14 questions from from that oh um, boy <laughs> <laughs> I, i'll cut i'll cut a few of them down or i'll combine them that's fine um so that's fine. you talked about like denning and and mm -hmm. you know i i think of uh, my my question is is it a historical den like a grouse lek or is it a scent thing why do they go back to those same places because you hear those horror stories of oh my god we had a snake den underneath our deck and 
you know, there's every spring there's 800 garter snakes or blue racers or whatever they are, you know, and they're everywhere and people are freaking out. Is it a historical thing or is it like a scent trail hormone thing or what, what draws them back to the same spot every year? It could be a little bit of both. Um, I, like, I don't know for sure, but you, they, they tend, a lot of them tend to go back to the same spot. Sure. Um, I think they do leave like a scent, there's scent trails where you can find different spots. Um, and I am, a, I am, my family is an experienced one here because we do have one, um, near our home, um, that is, there's a snake hibernaculum somewhere because snakes are very near and dear to our house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and of course, um, being, you know, a nature person, I'm okay with it, but the rest of the family has a little problem with it <laughs> right. sometimes. So I can, I mean, even my own family, I can try to educate, educate, and that fear is still installed right. somehow in them. So, um, but yeah, you just, they tend to kind of always be around a certain area and a certain den that they find. And, um, I'm sure there's new dens here and there with other new snakes too, but sure. it seems like, um, if it's a good place where they can get down deep, you know, probably six feet underground, you know, where it doesn't freeze and they can still just kind of slow down. And usually a lot of snakes, you don't um, like to hibernate with other snakes and they just kind of curl up and hang out down there until um, the warmth brings them back up. Now, some earlier this spring, there's some warmth that brought them back up and then all of a sudden it got really cold. So some snakes may not have made it or anything, but, you know, cold-blooded animals kind of deal with that stuff. You, sure. They have to have that temperature to regulate themselves. And so um, ones that we may find in our basement are still very cold and are just right. kind of waking up, yeah. but um, <laughs> which are easier to catch. Right. And I'm usually the one that has to wrangle them. Right. I bet you um, But, yeah, <laughs> but in my daughter, my daughter, she grew up, I am kind of made her be in the outdoors, so sure. she's okay with snakes too, but um, some of the other kiddos, not so much. But, yeah, I think it could be a scent thing. It could be just a historical thing that's always been, you know, a place where uh, certain areas where snakes go. Um, you know, and I don't know if I don't know if it has to do. I don't know. I think they may, some snakes may lay their eggs in certain areas, too, sure. but hibernate, hibernate in another area. It just depends on the species of snake sure. is what I'm thinking. But, yeah, a lot of them gather around, especially garter snakes and fox snakes. They right. all kind of have their area where they go to cool hey um so one of the one of my new duties with uh you know the kind of what we're doing and everybody kind of scrambling and now we're getting back to this new norm i'm uh mm-hmm. kind of looking over and answering as many of the questions from our wild info like our general um while on the wildlife side the, all the questions that we get from emails getting a lot of oh, questions sure. um probably all oh, that first warm spell and I think it's because people are home and and they're looking for something to do, but I might be wrong, but getting seems to be reports of lots, lots of people asking about snakes and, and snakes being out. Um, is that, is it just that time of year? It's just, we got that really kind of a, not a sudden, but a really, uh, kind of a big warm spell. All of a sudden it went from 30 to 60 here in pier for, you know, eight days in a row. And then, in central South Dakota, and it just started. All these questions started popping up. Do you think that's what that is? Is just, just a, right. It's the time of the year. Sure. I mean, spring. This is a time where a lot of things are waking up. Um, they are. They're coming out. The, the if there's a kind of a good constant temperatures that are kind of 
the same for yep. a long period of time, most of these animals are going to start, yeah, you know, sometimes they're like, oh, that was too early for you to right. wake up, yeah. and then they yeah. may go back. But they may not go back into true, like, deep hibernation again, but they might like, all right, got to sit still for a while. Yep. But, you know, especially from bugs to bats, I've seen them all flying around now on these warm days. Yep. Now, in the next couple of days, here down in <laughs> southeastern South Dakota, we're going to get snow, and it's going to be the high of 40 on Easter Sunday. Yep. These guys are going to be slowing down and, you know, not doing too much. Sure. Um, some may make it, some may not. But, you know, that's just part of their adaptation process. Right. But, yeah, spring is the time where things wake up, and they are going to get active, and they're going to be busy because they are hungry. Right, <laughs> They right, haven't right. eaten yeah. all winter long, so... <laughs> They will be busy. They will be out sunning themselves, you know, taking advantage of of the sun and warming their bodies up and finding a mate and things like that. So, yeah, spring is here, and um, even though the temperatures aren't a constant, they are. It's a kind of a natural thing for these animals to do. Yeah, and then and uh, I I had a, actually a lengthy email conversation with one person, and I said, "There's also no grass out, so you're going to see them." You know, it's not like yeah. there's grass and, you know, you go walking in the trees. There's there's nothing there except brown dead grass from last right. year, so they're easier to see. So, so right. next question, and maybe the million-dollar question, is how did you get your interest in snakes? And I know you own some snakes. How many do you have? Well, you know, like I mentioned before, I've anything that uh, it's just I've loved nature Anyway, I always like to know how nature works and right. why things do the way they do. So it's just kind of been in, kind of in, well, I'll give my credit to my grandpa Dake. My grandpa Dake lived, and my grandma and grandpa Dake lived out in a farm in eastern Iowa. And we would go there on certain occasions and, you know, holidays, but then in the summertime we'd spend some time there. And he would always have this one chair that would sit and face the window where a bird feeder was. Well, there was a couch on the other side and I'd be watching cartoons. And as I'd be watching him, he would say, hey, Jody, take a look at this bird out here. That is a blue jay. And then at first I'm like, oh, Grandpa, right. you know, I just want to watch Scooby-Doo, you right. know. And, <laughs> but but then all of a sudden it's like he just kept on feeding me the information. And all of a sudden, okay, I think I kind of like this. this I, he sparked he sparked the interest in me. And then I just kind of, okay, that's kind of cool. Why does a bird do it that way? And then I've always spent time in the outdoors, too, I think growing up in the 80s as a kid, you did spend time in the outdoors, so um, a lot of the time. And I just have always loved critters. And I think when I was young and I saw Joan Embry on Johnny Carson, I told myself, I'm going to be her someday. I'm going to be her someday. I want to work in a zoo, and I'm going to be on TV. And um, But, well, I work in a great park. I get to talk to people. I teach people about, um, I'm a teacher, always wanted to do that, but I didn't want to sit in a classroom. Right. So I thought I get to be a teacher in the outdoors, still reach all these people. And every once in a while, I get to be on a podcast. Right. I get to be on TV. I get to be on a radio. And I'm, you know, just showing or teaching people about the outdoors and hopefully they come out and enjoy them. So I don't think, I mean, snakes are a cool thing, like I said, because they're just a really neat animal. have so many adaptations. Mm-hmm. Um and they just are one of those that you want to kind of make people know a little bit more about so they don't have such a fear, especially if that keeps them from going outside, things right. like that. Um, and I just, I don't know, it's that fascination. But, yeah, I do have a couple. Um, I just have actually one now. Um, I have a western hog nose, 
snake that I use for education programs. Oh, yeah, you've had him and at the fair, I think, before. Yep, yep. And the old fox snake that I used to have, he passed away. I had him for 18 years. Oh, wow. So um, he lived a good life and taught a lot of kids. Um, but down in my part of the state, fox snakes are very popular. Um, uh, some bull snakes, the garter snakes. Sure. Um, the hognose snakes. We have about 16 different species of snakes in South Dakota. Just they just are kind of, question. yeah, awesome. they kind of splattered across the state in different areas. Some just are in small locations. Some cover the whole state. Um, and the the hognose that I have is a kind of a cool, and we do have a western and an eastern hognose. They're a little bit um, shy. You're going to see them. If you do see them, you're pretty lucky. They kind of like to hide under the leaf litter. Their favorite foods are like frogs and toads. They're ones that they will, and this, I'll probably go off on a tangent because I think they're such a cool thing, yeah, but they kind of fan out, they kind of fan out, they hiss, but then they flip over and play dead. And it's kind of a, and they hope, you know, I'm playing dead, I stink, you're going to leave me alone, right. kind of type thing. And those are just kind of cool things that you see, and you're like, why are they doing that? And um, same way with like, you know, you pick up a garter snake and it might musk all over you, that right. kind of thing. and. Um, but the fox snakes and the bull snakes, I get the most calls on those because they will vibrate their tail really yep. fast to sound like a rattle. And so I get a lot of phone calls on that and, um, they're constrictors. So they're not, they don't, they have little serrated edges in their mouth, but they don't have like a venomous bite right. to them. So they just act like, like they're gonna, you know, they're rattling just to, um, that's their way of saying stay away a little bit, but, um, but yeah, and then we have probably just, I got one venomous snake, that prairie rattlesnake that you guys have mostly over there on mm -hmm. the West River side. So um, there are some prairie rattlesnakes over in Iowa, just in a small location. But, um, but yeah, that's the one that I, I hear about over there on the west side of the state. So, but yeah, there's all different kinds and some that you will never, ever see. And then some that are very like, hey, look at me kind of type right. things. I'm everywhere. So right. um, there are all ranges, all, you know, different sizes. You know, from the prairie ringneck to the little brown snakes, they only get maybe 10 inches to a foot, you know, and then you got some big ones that get about bull snakes that can get about five feet, mm -hmm. you know. So it's a, it's a wide variety of um, reptiles out there in our state. Cool. For sure. So, it, and that brings me to, I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about rattlesnakes, but it, since you brought it yeah. up. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I was like you grew up on a on a eighty acres uh, creek running through trees, pasture. Love snakes, <laughs> always mm -hmm. chasing around, bringing them home. You know, oh yeah, kind of checking them out, and then Grandpa would make me let them go back in the garden. Never had a problem with snakes right. until I moved to Pier, and the first time I was out <laughs> in the Fort Pier National Grasslands, and I heard that rattle, I totally got gooned out. I mean, I just mm -hmm. I'm like, no, I'm out. I'm out, I'm out. And now, yep. you know, if I'm in town and I see one, I'm like, oh, okay. But I've had some, Yeah. I, I haven't had any really close experiences, like where I almost got bit. I've seen dogs get hit. Um, we did have some right. pheasant hunters bring, go out with some um, rattlesnake hunters after they were done hunting and brought back like 30 some rattlesnakes and they, you know, they were taking pictures and then they let them back go in the prairie dog town. Um, wow. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm getting more comfortable with them now, but I have dogs and, you know, so you're always worried, but, right. but where I'm going with this is, is I've seen a couple stories about some of the rattlesnakes in the black Hills, not rattling uh, and, and like not using their rattles. Have you heard anything about that? And, and 
at all? That you know, I don't know. Um, I'm putting you on the yeah, spot. Yeah, there's. Here, so. I that's no, I know, I know. But it's almost like when you just said that to me, I was like, that sounds very familiar. That I that I heard that that they're not even rattling to warn right. um, people anymore, and some of them, and I. I can't explain why they may be doing that. Um, I could take a wild guess, but on a podcast, I don't know if I should. Right. <laughs> no, or not. I'm not putting you on. I said I'm totally putting you on the spot here. I don't that's expect like that's an a very, and, and that's one of those things where it's like, huh, that'd be interesting to have somebody research right. that, you know, just to see are they getting more comfortable? Are they not feeling like they need to do it anymore? I mean, I, mean, I don't want to put any kind right. of human kind of characteristics on them at all. But it's just like, why are they adapting to that way right. now? And, you know, there's there has to be a reason why certain animals adapt to a certain way. Um, a lot of it adaptations just for your own survival. Sure. You look the way that you do and act the way that you do because it's your way of surviving. So um, as a critter, but yeah, that's an interesting thing. And hopefully somebody will, you know, really get into that and maybe try to find an answer for us for yeah. sure. So like I said, it I- is. But, you know, there's a lot of... Yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing, but that story does sound familiar yeah. to me for sure. Like I said, I totally put you on the spot there, and I'll have to apologize next time I see him in person. I'll I'll buy you a That's beer and, all and, right. and I'll apologize That's all right. to you. But... Well, the good thing is I didn't give any answer really. Right, right. So. <laughs> just, just interesting. I've learned my lesson on that. <laughs> so you're more than just a snake person. Let's talk about the Adams Homestead. That's down way down in the southeastern tip of South Dakota. Um, cool park. Uh, how big is that park? We are about 1,500 acres. So we, um, a little history behind our park down here is there's two sisters, Maud and Mary Adams, um, their grandparents, um, Stephen Cyril Adams. He homesteaded um, this area back in 1872, and um, they decided to donate it to the state of South Dakota. They wanted people um, from South Dakota and also other surrounding states to come out and enjoy an area that they grew up in that they enjoyed so much themselves. Right. Um, they wanted um, to share what they would consider their place. Um, it was they wanted to express and teach people about the cultural and natural history of South Dakota. So it kind of sits right there at the tip, the southeastern tip. We're kind of what we consider... We're located in the Siouxland area, right. which is kind of a tri-state area, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Iowa. And um, it is this beautiful 1,500 acres. We have over 10 miles of hiking and biking trails. Um, we have a homestead site that has uh, the Stavanger Church, the Shea Adams House, the Lamont Country School, the Berceau Cabin, and Sunny's Acres on it. And Sunny's Acres is kind of a live animal working farm. Um, Sonny was the brother of Maud and Mary. He passed away in World War II, and he wrote in a diary when he was 9, 10, and 11 years old. And a lot in his diary talked about what he did as a kid every day, and he focused on what he did in school, what he did with his family, but he really talked about um, the animals on the farm. And so we wanted to bring that diary to life, and we thought, well, we have a red barn out here. It's not being used. Let's bring Sonny's Acres to life. So... We have two donkeys now, sheep, chickens, and ducks. We have a pair of geese, and these are animals that he talked about that they had on their farm. Now kids can come out at certain times. We have programs, and they can learn the chores of what Sonny and his sisters had to do 
when they came out. So it's hands-on things. They gather the eggs. Um, they feed the animals. They scoop the manure. They do all that stuff. So it's a great hands-on activity out there for kiddos. And, um, yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun. We also have a great shelter house, a beautiful playground, Cottonwood Playground now. And at this time, our visitor center isn't open, but hopefully, you know, in the future, we'll get that open for everybody as soon as everything gets back to normal. But you can still come out, practice your social distancing, and get out on that trail, too. So right. it's a fun park. So if nobody's, if you haven't been there before and you're just cruising down in the most southeastern part of South Dakota, stop by. Stop by. We're always open, we're open year-round year-round if it's snowing we're cross-country skiing out there so right it's just a it's a nice little area to come to kind of a hidden gem it, it, around it, the area it really is um and I, I don't think we have to ask who does the chores for sunny's acres do we that, that's got to be you <laughs> <It's> <laughs> me. you're not letting anybody else do that but it, <laughs> it's me right it, it really is a, a a cool place and it's something you know i grew up in the in northeastern south dakota and i had no idea that that was there until i started working for tourism and God, that right. was 20 years ago. And, and I remember one of the first like trips that I took, I, I was with a bunch of, um, um, writers, journalists, and, uh, they had that on their list to go to the Adams homestead. And I had no idea. I didn't even know how to get there. And when I got there, I was right. kind of like, man, this is so different from, you know, from Sisseton and Roberts County. And it's so different from Pierre and, and just, right. Um, you know, just the natural stuff, the, the the natural resources that are there are amazing. But then you add on all this well-documented, you know, cultural history stuff. It, it's mm -hmm. it is really cool, and and um, yeah. it's definitely a must-see if you're if you're heading south of Sioux Falls and you're uh, before you get to Iowa, you can stop and and uh, right. So uh, you're not open, but obviously you're there doing your your critter chores and, and keeping your social distancing. Are you getting some pretty good park traffic people out using the trails and stuff right now? Let me tell you, it's been amazing. It has been amazing. Um, you know, if people haven't heard about us um, now, I mean, if they didn't hear about us before, they definitely know we are open now right. because we have a lot of people on these nice days out here. And these are people that I know have never been here before. Um, there's a lot of surrounding areas that are shutting down parks, right. playgrounds, things like that. And um, and luckily, so far we get to keep we get to stay open. And so we've had a lot of new traffic. We've had a lot of the same old visitors. But I can tell you that everybody seems to be following those guidelines of that social distancing. They may be with their family, right. but when I watch them walking on the trails, they are keeping their distance right. from everybody else. And like I said, we have 10 miles of hiking and biking trails. You might be going on the river loop, which is six miles in length, and may not see anybody, but there might be 37 cars in the parking right. lot. Right. So it's just, it's, it's a great place to get outside and to practice that, you know, those guidelines, the social distancing, and just take in the air and go for a hike. And because I know a lot of people have been cooped up and, um, and a lot of people have not been able to work. And so they need kind of that mental, um, just that something that can just kind of give them a break yep. a little bit from the indoors. And it's, it's, I'm, I'm proud to be able to, 
be working as in a park system um, with the game fish and parks that really promotes that outdoor health. And it's and like you mentioned about the park being unique. I go, that's what's great about our park system. I mean, our state parks, they're all unique in their own way. And if you're able to travel around the state and see every park, you're going to find something different, something unique and something great at each of those parks. So it's been, it's been a fun 20 years for me that I've been down at Adams Homestead and um, I've seen some really good changes and seen some and met some really neat people that really enjoy our park system. So I'm happy to be a part of that for sure. Cool. Cool. Well, I think I, I told Jody, this was going to be probably 20 minutes knowing that it was going to be 40, but I think we'll, uh, we'll let you go uh, before I do okay. let you go. I want to thank you, but I also want to encourage everybody, you know, if, uh, jump on Facebook and friend the Adams Homestead. Um, I know Jody's putting some cool stuff out there, uh, even though, you know, she's out doing chores and everything else. And we're, and uh, <laughs> but when when we do reopen, I for sure encourage everybody to go down there. Um, there's some cool stuff. Uh, if you see a goose with a GoPro on it, that wasn't my idea. That was her idea. Um, but, <laughs> but the next the goose I have now will not let me even touch it. So. <laughs> We will, we have to try it, try it on the sheet. We'll yeah, see what happens. <laughs> but uh, Jody, I thank thank you a ton for your time. This is super interesting. I knew it would be. And um, please take care of yourself and your family. Hey, you too. And thank you very much. And everybody, be safe out there. And hope to see you in the outdoors soon. Thanks much, Jody. All right, well, welcome back on these uh, Strange Days and Deeds episodes. We just uh, got done talking with my friend Jody Motes, who's got this really cool photo of a bunch of garter snakes, so go check that out, and I hope you enjoyed her. And right now i got a little bit of a change of pace. We're going outside the world of game fishing parks and talk to one of my friends, the myth, the man, the fly fishing legend, Buddy Siner. Buddy, how are we doing today, Buddy? Mr. Hole, I'm unbelievable. Thanks a lot for thinking of me for this. Right on. Well, it's that time of year. I, I mean, you and I have been talking about doing this for a couple months, and it's just never connected. But I uh, I saw a couple pictures of you slinging a fly around the pier, greater pier area and got a couple big fish, a pike, and uh, uh, I think it was a carp. I didn't get a good look at it, but I think it was a carp and not a buffalo. But just thought it would be a good, <laughs> yeah. good time now to talk about fly fishing and, and not necessarily even fly fishing for trout, but, but expanding the fly fishing horizons. But first I want to, I want you to talk about, and I want us to talk about uh, your podcast fish stories and, and just give, give our folks a, a kind of an idea behind it and what, what you take on and what the, why you did it, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So the fish stories archive is basically it's the first platform it's the first online platform that's dedicated to preserving angler voices uh and fishing stories so the the whole goal behind it is to is to enable any angler any person who has a has a an angler in their lives that they appreciate to record that person or their stories and preserve them for a long period of time preserve them forever for future generations to listen to and the goal is to get every single person, every angler that's out there to have their voice on this archive. Uh, 
you know, with when you look at the when you look at fishing and and just the outdoors in general, things change so much. And I every single year, and and I can think about how things have changed since I was a kid. And one of the big things that have changed for me are just the people that aren't around anymore right. that used to tell you know used to tell great stories and just we used to be you know have those opportunities to come together and i guess you could say you take it for granted when it's gone you really start to miss it and uh no one can really tell those stories like the person who tells them <laughs> you know it's right. just the, the voice the inflection the um the, the details those mi- minor details that really make a big difference and, and my grandpa was always one of those we, we used to sit down at his kitchen table and we used to just talk about fishing we didn't really have much else to talk about so you know, and, and I miss having those conversations. I never thought to bring a reporter along, of course. Right. Uh, so I was young and naive and just appreciated the opportunity to chat with him. But, um, it, but yeah, so once he died, I thought, gosh, I wish someone would would start something that would, you know, create this place for people to put their uh, stories. And it just never happened. And years went by, and I kind of just kept saying, I wish someone would do this. And finally, I just decided it was going to be me that did it. That did it so. Uh, fishstory.org was born. Uh, it's a free online platform. People can record stories on their phones and send it into the archive and, uh, you know, add, they can add tags to it. So their names, they can add lake names, state names, whatever it may be, fish names. And, uh, so that way when you go in to find those stories later, you just put it into the search bar. Right. You just type in walleye and all the stories with walleye come up or pier or lake sharp or, John Smith, you know, whatever it may be. Right. And uh, make it easy for people to find those, listen to those, share them with their friends and family, and just keep, you know, keep anglers' legacies alive for a long time because really, as anglers, our fishing stories are our legacies, and, and that's my goal is to help people preserve them and make sure that all these fish stories that are, you know, so great, whether it's great to one person or to a whole bunch of people, um, make sure they're still around for people to listen to many years to come. Right, and and I think you know that's that's kind of the point, uh, you know, I, as you're talking about it, and you and I have had these conversations, but you know, there's there's rarely a fish story, and especially if it's the person who's telling it, you know, it's not being retold by somebody else. You know, you could go say, well, Chris Hall caught this, you know, big mouth buffalo, and he told me blah. It's going to be mm-hmm. half the story as if it was coming from me, right? And and those first person stories are you know, with the inflection and all that stuff, if it registers with one angler, it's probably going to register with a lot of us because, you know, especially regionally and, and for sure locally, we all have our own vernacular. Where we all have our own way of saying things and, and way of just even relating things that, that, you know, people in those areas or those circles are going to laugh at something the way they said it or the way you explained it or a bait you were using or anything. And, as you were talking, I just, you know, we had similar upbringings. My grandpa was the one. My dad was a great fisherman, but he had no patience to take kids. And, and uh, my dad fished a lot. But I, until I was older, I didn't fish with my dad. I fished with my grandpa. And, you know, he was probably, you know, in my mind, the greatest fisherman, but certainly the greatest fish storyteller that, you know, I had ever come across. Now, you know, in my professional career, you deal with writers and, and people who are very, eloquent and very well-spoken and very you know practiced and they can tell great stories but 
you know, you look back and it was, you know, my grandpa regaling the stories and it was like, man, I was there. I was in the boat with you. I didn't remember it being that awesome, but now I do. You know? <laughs> um, right. So, yeah, that, so that's a great point, but it's fishstories.org and you can just record them and shoot them on there and then go and listen. Um, I, I know it's a rabbit hole. I've been down a few, <laughs> a few times, especially in the last few weeks, just going and, and listening and listening to people who I don't know and a few people I do know. <laughs> Um, so it's a, it's a huge undertaking and it, it's certainly brilliant. Um, and, and it's a, it's a great way to pass the time. So that's cool stuff. Yeah. And there's a lot of work to be done. You know, it's in its infancy stage, but, and I've made a lot of mistakes and I'm sure I'm going to make a lot more mistakes. Um, but you know, one of those things that I can't stress enough is that it's really easy to put things like this off. It's right. really easy to say, Oh, I'll, I'll I'll do that tomorrow, right. or you know, I'll, I'll record them next time we see them. Yeah, and and I and I get that because I do that too. Um, but right now, for the most part, it's it's really you know there have been some people that have that have put put stories in the archive, and that's I really appreciate that because that that always brings that added element. It's just a person, it's a microphone, it's their phone, and they're just they're just doing their thing, and I love that. It's not professionally enhanced or produced or anything like that. It's just as it is. Right. And sometimes there's a few choice words in there. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, it just depends on who's talking. That's all well and good. But it's so easy to say, oh, I'll do that tomorrow. I'll do that next week or during Thanksgiving. Um, I, I would really encourage anyone, if you, if you have an angler in your life that you can think of, whether it's a, a, one of your kids or it's your uncles or aunts or grandmas or grandpas, I would just call them and, or talk to them and say, hey, let's talk about fishing for 30 minutes. And you'll be surprised how quickly it goes by if you ask good questions and if you listen intently to what they're saying and just and just enjoy the conversation. Um, you'll probably end up talking for hours when you uh, b- before you know it. So uh, I would encourage people just to do it, even if you don't put it into the archive. Honestly, that just so you have the recording there, just learn from other people's mistakes. Everyone always says that one of the biggest regrets I hear out and about is that I wish I would have recorded my the stories of my dad or i wish yeah. i would talk to my grand, grandma more about fishing you know all those all those regrets you know we can avoid those those are those are completely avoidable regrets so i'd encourage everyone to just take the initiative and get it done yeah that's 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 good stuff um what's your so i'm going to put you on the spot what's your favorite fishing story you have the floor so yeah, feel free that's a great oh, that's a great question <laughs> I'm not used to, you know, I'm not used to people asking right. me the question. That's one of my favorite questions to ask, but I can't can't say I've ever even been asked that before. Uh, so my, one of my favorite fishing stories of all time involved a friend of mine, uh, David Scott from Awanka, South Dakota. And it was August, it was probably August of 2003, I think. Uh, we were, we were fishing the Stilling Basin and... This is, I was in college. He was, you know, working farming and ranching out in by New Underwood. And we always made a couple trips to Pier to fish. And he had his uncle David's boat. And we were just trolling around in the stilling basin, dragging spinners, catching 17 to 18 inch walleyes, one after another. And every once in a while we'd get, we'd get a little baby catfish. And these catfish were about, you know, seven to eight inches long. Right. And, and we were, and we were trolling these spinners. So, you always knew you had that catfish because it would come straight up to the top and that thing would be water skiing. It'd be up near the top when you're <laughs> reeling it in. So 
you know, you'd crank it in, you'd take that thing off and get your rig back down again. So we're <laughs> we're putting along and and uh David hooks David hooks this catfish and it's up there and gets up to the top and it's water skiing and and I put the net down. Uh and all of a sudden I look back and I say, What what is that green stuff hanging off of your catfish? And it just looks like a big long stretch of, of seaweed. And we just kind of look and look, and we can't tell until it gets about five feet from the boat. We can see that this is one of the biggest muskies we'd ever seen. Oh, right on. And this muskie, this muskie dives or goes after the catfish right by the boat and lunges for it and misses it right by the boat and then dives under the boat. So <laughs> I'm, I'm scrambling around trying to find the net, and David's trying to do a figure eight with a big six-foot-long spinner leader <laughs> on the boat trying to get this muskie. Well, it turns out the state record muskie came out of the stilling basin. I think it was about six months later, maybe the next year sometime. Yep. The state record muskie was caught in the stilling basin. And so we are we are pretty excited to know that we at least potentially think we saw the state record muskie and we almost hammered it on a baby catfish. That's, that's <laughs> we just awesome. didn't get it done. That's awesome. And, and you know, how fishing stories tie us together. You know, before they opened the stilling basin uh, during the flood, you know, that mm-hmm. stilling basin was probably one of the best places around to shore fish. I mean, the opportunities Absolutely. because there were ledges and then it dropped off deep. So those fish would come up and, you know, relate, especially in the evenings. And there was a, there was a, there was a place, um, a lot of people called the plum thicket. We always called it tangle bush. It was just really thick. You had to climb down there to get, get there. And it was a great yep. spot. And that same summer that you're talking about, the year before those guys, and I think they're from Clark that broke that, they were catfishing in that spot. Um, but I was in that spot and had almost the same thing happen to me, except it was with a little white bass. And there was just this, it was reeling it in, it came on the top. And I never really got a good look at it, but it was the biggest swell, crash, splash I've ever seen 15 feet from the end of my line. And, you know, it, it, it could have been a giant pike, but I was, as soon as those guys landed that muskie, I'm like, that was the same spot that had to have been that fish, you know, how, how your brain thinks. So It had to have been, for sure. And I can't imagine there's that many big muskies. So there couldn't have, there couldn't have been that many big muskies in there at right. the time. Right, right. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it was a, it's kind of cool. I wonder, it makes me wonder how many people got a glimpse of that muskie. Or, or how many, how many... And had it on at some point. Right. So I wonder how many fishing stories that muskie created. Right. You know, by being in that stilling basin. I, I bet it's been a part of a lot of them. Right. Buddy, do you find, <laughs> and, and I've, like I said, I've listened to, to some of those tales in the archives and stuff, And but I'm thinking about, you know, I put you on the spot of your favorite fishing story, and I started thinking, well, you know, before I even asked the question, I don't know what my answer is, but I can just about guarantee you that my favorite fishing stories don't include me catching a big fish. It's either somebody else catching a big fish or missing a big fish or, you know, just having something dumb happen. Do you, do you find that when you talk to people that, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, the time I caught a 31-inch walleye? A hundred percent. In fact, I'd say, yeah, more often than not, when I, when I ask someone, what is your favorite fishing story, very, very rarely do they start talking about themselves. <laughs> it's it's usually about someone. It's about a friend of theirs. It's about a family member, or it's just about something that is just such an indelible memory that happened while fishing 
uh, that it's stuck with them so so much over the years. And a lot of people even say specifically, you know, the fishing, the, my favorite fishing stories don't involve fish at all. It just involves the people I'm with. It right. involves the times out on the water. It involves um, just being out, just being outside in general. Right. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. I, I hear that a lot. And I think that's maybe one one reason I think these stories are so impactful and so necessary uh, because that, I think that's changing a little bit. Um, I don't I don't want to say it definitively, but it just seems to me that experiences and, and expectations and um, and the I guess the the effort of fishermen is changing. Um, as I see it from when I was a kid. And I, I think having these stories and having the people around to talk about their experiences when they were younger and their favorite experiences will help keep people grounded, will help keep them humble, and help them maybe keep things into perspective when they are getting out and enjoying our great outdoors. Right, and that, that actually goes kind of into my next question. I mean, um, our listeners or my listeners know that, you know, I work for – communications for game fish and parks i talk to a lot of people during a given day and a lot of times when i'm talking to them they're mad about something you know it might be to the point where they couldn't get the right answer or they saw something that they really didn't like or you know whatever it is Uh, you know a campsite had mosquitoes or you know it could be anything (laughs) and and it really can can beat can beat you down when when i took this job uh then secretary john cooper said you know you got to have thick skin and and a lot of times at the end of the day, you know, I might have helped 25 people and answered a lot of questions with, you know, whether it's emails or, or social media posts or targeted emails or, you know, whatever, whatever it is for that day. I'm I feel like I'm beat up and, and it's and a, a lot of it is that, you know, the effort and and, you know, perception versus reality and those things that, you know, a lot of people are are you know, results driven, you know, by God, if I didn't get my limit of walleyes today, it was a bad day and I'm mad about it. Um, I mm-hmm. got, you know, whatever it is. And, and to hear some of these stories and to hear kind of that thinking really kind of fills my bucket, if you will, and being like, okay, this is why I do it. You know, I, I look at my family and, and maybe we went out fishing and, and we tangled up a hundred times and I tied up 50 jigs and we never caught anything, but at <laughs> least it's that, you know, it's still that it might not be the best memory, but it was a it was a thing time we spent together. It was a time that we were outdoors doing the things that we love to do and the reasons why we live where we live. So it, it kind of, you know, resets you. And a lot of these stories for me, that's what it does. Um, and I and I think and I, I you know, I'm going to tread lightly here. But when I grew up, you know, you know, outdoor magazines and I have compilations of like fishing books where these guys are telling these great fishing stories, you know. And it was sort of results driven because it's a story, but I, mm-hmm. I I think somewhere along the line we got away from that, you know, to where it's more of of not necessarily an advertisement, but it's you know to to be successful you have to have X Y Z and that has to equal A, where you know the journey is is kind of lost. Yeah, I, I agree with you a hundred percent, and and it's not. And I understand that you know, the evolution of print media um, has, has just gone more towards advertising anyway. So it's going to be more advertising driven just because they got to keep their doors open. Right. Um, and they're looking for any possible way because everything is, 
content is just so easy to access anymore. You, you know, people just aren't willing to, to pay like they were right. back in the day for newspapers and for, for magazines. So, um, yeah, it's certainly going to, it's going to change. And, and then, of course, the, the, uh, the integrity of the article is also going to change from one of the, you know what, I want this to be a value. I want people to get enjoyment out of this to one of, I want people to see this. Right. It's, it changes. It's, it changes the the integrity of the article completely, and that's a challenge. Um, and and I, I I have much appreciation for online platforms, uh, video platforms, but it, again, it's going in. I think a lot of it is becoming a this selfish, self centered, narcissistic world where you know it, it's it's all about individuality. It's all about you know this is how this is how you catch more fish this is how you do this and that and, right. and the story is is becoming lost right I, you know I, in the mix I, I do have some hope and i i don't know um how much you follow along but like joe sermelli and field and stream those um those pieces that he does where he's just going out mm -hmm. and he's fishing with his buddies and they're using certain tackle and certain things mm -hmm. and doing certain techniques and then like on youtube there's um uh they're Canadians. It's uncut angling and 39 hours. And I'm not, I'm not advocating or, you know, trying to shoot out a commercial or anything, but those guys <laughs> really, really do a good job of like, they relay what they're using, but they're having so much fun and they're such characters and the way they tell things, tell the stories and, and their production values with just the small cameras and doing it all themselves is really unbelievable. If you haven't watched any of that stuff on YouTube, I mean, I, I recommend everybody go out there and do it because they they catch big fish. They're doing it on their own. They're having a ton of fun. They're funny, engaging guys, and you can learn a lot. Um, mm -hmm. So I do have some hope for it, and I think stories, you know, and projects like yours and hopefully even, you know, the podcast and some of the stuff I get to do with work and we get to do with work, you know, kind of keeps those kind of storytelling ways alive. And, and I know it sounds corny, but it's – you know, it's why we do what we do. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, you're right. The, the hope is that these these platforms are inspiring people. They're entertaining people, and that gets people excited about going out and catching some big fish or about getting into a sport that they've never done before. Uh, you know, I've I've done some videos and and I've done some uh, uh, some online things that and articles that get people uh, that. People have contacted me and said, hey, I, I read this or I saw this and I'd really like to learn how to fly fish or I'd really like to learn how to tie flies and, and I'd really like to find out more about it. And that, that's kind of, that's what gets me excited. Um, you know, my whole, my passion is to use this sport, use the sport of fishing or fly fishing or just outdoors in general to inspire people to find a greater appreciation for our outdoors right. so that maybe they will take better care of it so that they will be good stewards in the future. And, uh, and the more, the more good stewards we have, the, the easier, you know, GFP's job gets because right. it's the small percentage of people that just make it really difficult. And right. I, you know, shout out to you and your communication staff, because, uh, you know, not any, not everyone could do what you guys do. You're positive. You're, you're a positive platform. You're, you're always, well, you're most often dealing with people who have issues or tr tr troubles, and you're always positive and you're informative. Right. You're not just going to blow smoke up people, 
rear ends and and give them an answer they want. You're going to tell them what they need to hear, and I appreciate that about right. you specifically and and other other people at GFD. You guys do a good job. Well, thanks. So you you mentioned fly fishing, and and I've got uh, uh, my fishing partner sitting over my corner in corner of my shoulder here, and she wants to ask ask you a question, but. Um, first, you live in Pier. You've been here a long time. How did you get into fly fishing? I mean, how did it become this driver for you? I was I was really lucky in that I I I had an interest in fly fishing ever since elementary school. It was Rapid Valley Elementary. I was just infatuated with fly fishing. I had uncles that fly fish, and uh, they you know they'd bring DVD or they'd bring videos. <laughs> they weren't DVDs back yeah, then. Right. Uh, <laughs> They'd bring videotapes called Trout Thumb Diaries, and uh, they'd bring them to holidays. And I'd watch those, and I would just become infatuated with this this concept of making a fly, making a bug, something that looks like a bug, and then enticing a fish to eat it. That just blew my mind. I had a good friend in Rapid City who tied his own fly. And we were, gosh, we were in elementary school at this time, or junior high at this point. And uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't even wrap my head around myself being good at that so i guess fear kind of held me back and i had this perception of well maybe you know i need to have the waders i need to have the vest i need to have the lanyard i need to have all the right tools i need to have a good fly rod before i can even show face you know i don't want to i don't want to be a laughing right and that really held me back from it but my uncle gave me a an old berkeley cherrywood fly rod and an old fly reel with line that went through the guys that's all i really needed at the time um, the first, the first uh, fish that I was catching was at New Underwood Dam, you know, in New Underwood, South Dakota, uh, just catching big bluegills and crappies and perch on the fly, right. getting just devoured by mosquitoes the whole time. <laughs> but um, Wicksville, Wicksville Dam used to have ten big ten-inch bluegills, and it was just one after another, and you, they would happily come up and eat a, a fly off the surface. Um, I didn't know why they were eating it. I didn't really care, but they were. They were eating it, uh, and it and I and it, the Black Hills were important for me as well. Sylvan Lake was a place where I learned to fly fish, but I learned with a with a clear plastic bobber uh, and you know one of those little float yeah. Oh, yeah. water 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 bubbles, and uh, and a pack of six um, gift shop flies, and I because I saw all these fish rising, and I was fishing with salmon eggs on the bottom. Sure. Like, like I, that's how I grew up fishing. That's all, the only way I knew to fit, catch a trout. And saw all these fish coming up and rising at the top. I thought, what the heck are they doing? So went up to that gift shop, bought that pack of six flies, picked the one that looked like it was flying. So I picked one with wings. And sure enough, I mean, almost every cast, I would catch a fish. Right. I'd catch a fish. Soon enough, a crowd started to gather. They say, oh, what are you catching them all? What are you using? Why are they eating that? Right. I had no idea, but I felt <laughs> so cool. Uh, I felt I felt like a celebrity. And so from that point on, I really started to get into it. Um, and it just evolved. I was lucky, though, because it wasn't just trout for me. It was bass. It was bluegills and crappies and perch. I didn't, I, from square one, I didn't think that fly fishing was just for trout. Right. I just knew it was for everything. And uh, ever since then, it, it kind of turned into, you know, carp is one of my big passions, common carp. Chasing them with the fly rod is one of my favorite things. And walleye and northern and musky, uh, smallmouth bass are just a blast. Uh, white, but the white bass run is one of my favorite times of the year right. because uh, the, on the fly, 
you can not only catch fish 20, 25, 30 consecutive casts, but you can just do it constantly, you know, morning, noon, night. Right. You can always find fish on the fly. So, yeah, I I got into it. Uh, it took me a while to get into it because I was a little bit afraid, but I found out a lot of a lot of those initial fears were were unwarranted for sure. Right. And I, I I think that's an important point. I mean, full disclosure, I've had my grandpa's fly rod for 20 years. I've caught five fish on it. Um, two of them were on camera with North American Fishing Club, and one of them was when I went to go cast, there was a fish on the end of it, and I threw an 8-inch bluegill over my head and over the dam. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's the knot tying. It's it's Some of that stuff can be really, you know, not even tie, the tying of the flies, which we're going to get to, but... Just the, yeah. the knots and the, you know, I think I have a basic understanding of how to do it. But especially when you get to my age, you don't want to go out and do something and look foolish, especially if it's hunting and fishing related. <laughs> I mean, you and I are not Benny yeah. Spies. We're not fearless, right? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I have a reputation for Pete's sakes, but I think I'm going to get over it because, like I said, I've got this little girl sitting over my shoulder and for what uh, our listeners don't know is Buddy and some of his friends in peer have a fly tying club or they meet and they tie flies together and they share information. And I think they steal each other's equipment and, and <laughs> hair and everything. But this Christmas, my wife and daughter snuck away a few weeks and buddy and Jason Burt and a few other guys helped my daughter tie a bunch of flies that I got for Christmas. And it really probably is the coolest gift I've gotten in 10 years is this box of flies. Um, each one of them is a little bit of her and a little bit of me and a little bit of mom and there are pieces of art and, and actually I took some of the clouser minnows that she tied and I took them out ice fishing this year and caught a bunch of crappies with them. Um, you got to fish them inside and you got to fish them with really light line, but man, the crappies through the ice just hate that thing. They just, it drops down in front of them and they just hammer it. So it's cool, but we're going to adjust and we're going to learn how to fly fish because Charlie won a fly rod a few years ago and um, but talk about that club and, and, and kind of, or that group and, and, and how that's kind of evolved and, and even opened some doors for you and everybody else. Yeah, the, the Tuesday Tire is one of the greatest group of people I've ever had the opportunity to meet. I joined them in 2007. Uh, I called Tim Bjork mm-hmm. uh, at the time, and, uh, and I asked, and I sheepishly asked him because at the time I, I really wasn't a great fly tire. I, I didn't know a lot about it. I I had tied some flies. I'd caught some fish on them. I I was feeling somewhat confident, but uh, confident enough to call this guy and say, "Hey, I'd like to join your club." Because uh, I'm, you know, they weren't taking applications or anything. It was just this. It's just this little club. And I and the reason I wanted to join them was because I read an article about them uh, getting. It, buying a, a fly rod and a float tube for uh, a young man uh, in high school had cerebral palsy and he just loved to fly fish. So the, the tires kind of took him under their wing and got him all this stuff. And he's still, you know, he's still an active member of the club. He doesn't show up to tie as often as he used to because he's he's a working man now. But um, but that's what really uh, grabbed my interest right off the bat. And I uh, got to know a lot of these guys who have really. I'm really proud to call friends now. I've uh, learned so much about fly fishing and about life in general and about work and relationships. And you learn about everything right. uh, when you come to a Tuesday tire session. <laughs> and and uh, I've, my, one of my favorite things is just 
their willingness to to appease my wild harebrained ideas, whether it's <laughs> you know putting on a kids clinic for you know for a bunch of young kids or um, doing a, a fly tying setup at the Discovery Center or whatever it may be. All all those guys are always willing to help out or contribute money to the cause. And we always get to take a couple trips together in the spring and fall, so um, that that adds to the to the bonus. But yeah, we meet every Tuesday night uh, during the winter time from December until April. Uh, we meet on Tuesday nights at seven o'clock, and we tie flies until about nine o'clock, or until everyone wants to shut the lights off. So, and you know, to me, that's that's really interesting because you, you think of you know fly fishing, especially angling in general, but fly fishing especially is this solitary thing, right? It's a river runs through it. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. if you've got an angler within 300 yards of you fly fishing, it's like, oh, God, I might as well stay home. You know, this big <laughs> grandiose thing. But it really it's, you know, something like that. It's really driven socially. And, and uh, you know, it's a cool way to, you know, pass pass the torch, if, if you will, and, and keep some of those traditions alive. But So that's cool, and I, yeah. appreci- I appreciate it. I've I've used a few of the the uh clousers one of them got completely destroyed um but uh we've tied some other ones we've tied some for gifts uh we like uh, my brother up in northern minnesota got a vikings colored one and and it's hanging above the bar you know and and uh, now she wants to tie some pike flies but she's got a question for you if she's not too shy so go ahead and speak up charlie okay my question is what is your favorite fly to fish with oh Charlie, that's a great question. Before I answer it, though, I need to say that you are an awesome fly tire, uh, and I am so impressed. When, when Charlie came to fly tying on Tuesday night, I didn't know what to expect. She was in our first fly tying clinic, and she did an awesome job. But it had been a few years before, yep. you know, since she had tied, so I wasn't as sure, sure what to expect. But she had her vice. She had her materials. We set everything up. I did absolutely nothing. I set up my vise and I put a hook in, and I kind of just tied along, but she did everything on her own. Um, Melissa was there to kind of watch, too, but um, for the most part, she she just blew me away uh, <laughs> as far as her dexterity and her, her skill. And like you said, Chris, it's an art. You know, just sitting down and doing this is an art form, and, and Charlie had a knack for it, so i got to say good job to her for doing that. And it's a great idea, too great idea for a gift for your dad um but uh my favorite fly it really depends on the day charlie but right i'd say right now my favorite fly is called a double trouble it's something that i invented it's a little it's and you and i tied one kind of similar to it's a little black woolly bugger like fly but it's tied on a treble hook with one of the with one of the hooks cut off of it. So there's just two hooks on that treble, and then uh-huh. it's black, and then I have an olive tail there. And uh, the, the carp, the white bass, smallies, they love that fly. And I can fish that. I can fish that from March all the way until November, and I can catch fish on that fly. So that's probably my favorite right now. That's cool. Well, and I, and I appreciate it. I mean... You know, I had no idea where they were going on Tuesdays, and I, they would just leave. And I was going to bowling a lot of times, so I'm like, "Oh, okay." And then I got that. I'm just like, "How? You know, what in the world?" And they were telling me, "I was like, oh, I know some of those guys, and I'm going to have to buy them a beer when I see them." But you know, the, the cool thing to me about it is, is 
it is art and you create it. And, and like you said, I mean, you can create your own fly. It might be a variation of something, but it's, it's yours. It was in your brain and it goes out and I've tied a few panfish jigs and, and I'm terrible at it. She just laughs at me because one, I can't <laughs> see and two, my hands don't work as well as hers, but so it, it is cool, but it, it gets, gets to a point too, buddy, if, you know, when when Charlie showed up, she did have a little vice, but that was from one of the classes that, that you guys put on a few years ago, and she was just a little fart then. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the the amount of stuff that that you guys just kind of gave her and, and you know, we have, and, you know, the, the vice that she somebody gave her um, is sitting down in the basement, and, and I'll go down and she'll be quiet. What are you doing? And there'll be six or seven new flies there. Well, I'm going to give them to so-and-so, or I'm going to put these, so, you know, somewhere. So it is is really cool, but it, it's we went we went to Rapid City and and bugged Hans and and you know he was just like well you know he I've I've known him a little bit, but you know mm-hmm. they were really great with well what where do you guys live and and you know the stuff that we got and was relatively inexpensive especially if you start combining it with what you were going to pay for lures anyway or even jigs um, absolutely you can get into that fairly cheap. Uh, how would you, if somebody, you know, was just listening to this and they're kind of isolated, how do you, how do you learn? I mean, there's tons of videos and I think you've just done some recently, haven't you? You know, kind of how to videos. Yeah, I'm, I'm partnering with Larva Lace. Uh, they're, they're manufactured in Mitchell, South Dakota, believe it or not. Fly fishing stuff manufactured in Mitchell. <laughs> uh, I'm partnering with them at Hagen's Fishing owns Larva Lace and, uh, they, they want to, you know, kind of, be more a part of the fishing community and, and give back to it. And so those videos are a chance for them to do that. And, and it's flies that I really enjoy. It's flies that catch fish for me. Uh, and I, I do step-by-step tutorials on how to tie those. And I put, you know, put the camera nice and close so you can really see all the details and, right and uh, try to make it something that's easy for something, some people to follow. But you mentioned Hans out in Rapid City at Dakota Angler and Outfitter. Those guys do amazing videos. Yeah, they do. And not necessarily, you know, the quality, it's a, it's a video of a guy tying a fly, but the quality of the flies themselves are what, what really gets you. And those flies, if you want to catch fish, they have hundreds and hundreds of patterns, um, videos that they have done. And uh, that's really where I would start if, if you're looking to learn how to tie flies, just watch those guys. Right. And, uh, and, and tie up some of the things that they've, that they've done. You don't, and one thing that I need to stress is, you know, they're going to have, there's going to be materials. There's going to be materials list. You do not need the exact materials. You do not need the exact hook. Just use what you have. Right. Tie up some flies. There are flies that catch fish and there are flies that catch anglers. Right. Just and, like lures. you know, <laughs> Just like lures, exactly. You might not think that fly looks like much, but do not judge it too quickly before you let Mr. Mister Fish judge it because I can almost guarantee you that most 99.9% of the flies that come out of a vice would definitely catch fish somewhere. Right. Um, you know, and it, the other thing, and you mentioned it, like the, the casting bubble, the clear casting bubbles, I've used those a lot on a little lightweight rod. And it's and it is a good way to catch fish with flies, especially like topwater bluegills and bass and and uh, white bass, um, you know, just the cheap poppers and stuff. And but uh, you know, the more I look around and and like I said, I we've got two fly rods and and we're learning to tie the knots and we're definitely going out and going to try it and we're going to snag trees and snag each other and everything. But 
for what most anglers pay for lures and jigs and rapalas and shad wraps and stuff, you could get into a fly tying set, especially I was looking uh, yesterday on Amazon and eBay. I mean, there's used stuff out there that is, is quality stuff, and you can get into a, you know, a, a kit with a lot of stuff for surprisingly cheap. And even if somebody doesn't want to tackle, you know, um, you know, the, the fly tying or the fly casting, fly fishing stuff right away, you know, I've used Clouser minnows on a casting bubble and just caught walleyes and, and pike and, and white bass and smallmouth and stuff, and it's a riot. Um, so, you know, even if you're not willing to take that full jump into fly fly fishing, which if you like to cast, you probably should anyway, but, you know, there are ways to upgrade your fishing arsenal and not get into that whole giant thing of equipment, plus you're doing it yourself. Plus, you can isolate and sit in your basement and tie these hairy critters and then go out and throw them around. So that's cool Yeah, stuff. I 100% agree. That's exactly how we fish for white bass with my 3-year-old and my 7-year-old and 11-year-old. Bill. They they don't have the fly fishing down yet, and that's partially my fault. I'm too busy teaching other people how to fly fish. <laughs> that's not how my it goes, kids, too, right? Unfortunately. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, but we put a bobber on and a little clouser or a deceiver. Or a little uh, bully bugger, and oh my gosh, you just let them do their thing. White bass love right. all of those flies, yep. and it's just a hoot watching that watching that rod bend and watching the the kids hoot and holler and say, "I want to do that again! I want to do that again!" So, I would definitely encourage it. There's there's just ways you can present a fly different from ways you can present a jig and right. a minnow or a jig and a plastic, um, and sometimes I, I I just can't tell you how many times I've been standing on a shoreline catching fish after fish while the guys in the boat fishing jigs are not catching anything. Right. Whether they're fishing too fast or fishing too low or too deep, whatever it may be, um, there's just things you can do with a fly rod or with a fly that you can't do with a traditional tackle. So I would definitely encourage it. It's a great pastime. It's a great hobby, great art form, uh, and just a great way to catch fish all around. Cool. Well, buddy, I, I appreciate everything that, uh, you bring to the table and, and you appreciate your time. I certainly appreciate your patience with, with my family and the awesome gift that I got. And, and like I said, uh, one of these Tuesdays when you guys start getting back together this next winter, I'll definitely show up with a, a case of really good beer and, and, uh, and show you my appreciation. But I thank you for your time. Uh, fishstories.org. Um, and what was the, uh, what are the, what are the links for your, for your fly tying videos, buddy? Well, you can find those on the Larva Lace uh, Fly Tying uh, Larva Lace Fly Tying Facebook page, or at HagensFish.com. Uh, that's where those fly tying videos. And we're going to do two a month for now. So I think we've got four. We got four right now. So there there will be more to come. But uh, they've got some fun things planned. I'm excited to be a part of it. But yeah, I appreciate you too, Chris. Thanks for the uh, thanks for thinking of me for this and. Thanks for all the great work you do for GFMP. Keep it up. Thanks. I appreciate it. We'll be in touch. But uh, fishstories.org, go out and drop your uh, your favorite 5 or 10, 20 stories and uh, put them on the archive for everybody else to enjoy. Buddy Signer, thank you for your time. I appreciate the heck out of it. You're welcome. Thanks, Chris. Well, there you have it. That's going to wrap it up for this 13th edition of the GFP Podcast and Blast. Hope you liked it. A couple of pretty cool uh, different interviews. If you've got any ideas for interviews or you got some stories or 
you just want to hear about something that Game Fishing Parks is doing, uh, just let us know. Comment uh, on our Facebook page. Uh, reach out to me personally at chris.hull at state.sd.us. And if it uh, tickles my fancy or trips my trigger, uh, don't be too shocked to hear me reach back out to you or even hear it just on this podcast. Stay safe, stay well, get out and enjoy our outdoors. Do it responsibly, do it locally, and have some fun. Thanks for listening. It's down the ball way.